This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. In this episode, I welcome on Dr. Richard Bowles. Dr. Bowles is a medical geneticist and a pediatrician who specializes in mitochondrial medicine, functional disease, and autism spectrum disorders. He has over 70 published papers, mostly in mitochondrial medicine, and is considered a pioneer in genomics. Dr. Bowles currently is in private practice in Pasadena, California, and at the Rosignol Medical Center in Aliso Viejo, California. About one half of his patients have neurodevelopmental disorders. As travel to California can be challenging for many, Dr. Bowles has joined NeuroAbilities Healthcare in order to provide telemedicine services and helping physicians and families translate modern genetics into practical treatment options. Dr. Bowles is also the founder of mitochondrial nutrition company named NeuroNeeds that focuses on serving the autism spectrum disorder community. In this episode, we discuss genetic testing overall, the unique genetics of autism spectrum disorders, including those pertaining to social communication and mitochondria. We get into how mitochondrial dysfunction impacts autism, how to test for mitochondrial dysfunction, the nutritional applications of mitochondrial dysfunction. We go into some specifics about CoQ10, I had to go back and listen to this episode three times as almost every sentence that came out of his mouth was a pearl of wisdom. I hope you enjoy this conversation with this most esteemed guest. As becomes a tradition at the One Thing Podcast, we will be donating $1 of the first 100 plays to the charity of choice of Dr. Bowles, which he has selected as Mito Action, which is an organization that devotes resources and education to helping people with mitochondrial disorders. Please visit their page at mitoaction.org if, if you'd also like to contribute. So without further ado, I welcome you into our conversation with this most esteemed guest. Well, Dr. Bowles, welcome to the One Theme Podcast. I'm delighted to have you on with us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Um, so we have a lot to cover today. And um, I, I think it's always best to kind of start with some backstory as to how you got interested in medical genetics and just kind of the journey that led you down this path. Well, I started off in pediatrics because I, I love children. And I saw that genetics is really up and coming. This was when I was training in the 1980s and it was the basis of disease. I wanted to understand more what was wrong with my patients. And also it was a challenge. And so I got involved in genetics. I got involved in the area that I'm in. Um, I do functional disorders um, like migraine, cyclic vomiting, chronic fatigue, as well as the neurodevelopmental disorders like autism and ADHD, um, because very few people were doing those. And it seemed to be a, a great demand for that. And there was a lot of patients at those areas. So I thought that I would try to put my genetic information and see if I can make use of it in the, in the areas that were of the most need, in my opinion. Oh, so it must, it must, to me, from an outsider looking in it, it seems like the need for your, your expertise has grown exponentially in the last 10 to 15 years. Is that accurate or is just um, sort of uh, just a kind of layman's perspective? The number of patients that have been recognized in these areas is increasing dramatically as people recognize that they're not crazy and they didn't do it to themselves, and that there is a real disease entity. Um, and as we get more information about genetics, we are better able to understand what causes these conditions and hence to treat it. 
So the ability to recognize and the ability to treat it has really skyrocketed in terms of the demand for my services. So yeah, I got in the right area. Yeah, yeah. So I know your expertise is genetic testing in and in a lot of different areas, but um, what we're focusing today is on the um, autism spectrum disorders. And um, can we just talk about some basic overview about what genetic testing is, um, what kind of what you're looking for and how testing genetics changes treatment or influences direction of care? Well, first, let me say what genetic testing is. Not long ago, we used to use what we call the genetic approach in that you figured out what was wrong with the patient based upon how they looked and um, the exam and laboratories and everything, non-genetic labs, came up with a diagnosis. And then as genetic tests became available to confirm the diagnosis or to deny it and say, well, we have to start over again, we would then order the test based upon what we thought that it was. And then it got to the point that the genetic test became easier to order and cheaper so that we can order a bunch of tests based upon what we thought might be going on. And lately now I'm completely in the genomic. And that is, is we sequence all of the DNA, all 3 billion nucleotide pairs from mother and from father, and then look at all of the abnormalities in there and, or all of the sequence variants of which there's tens of thousands look at the ones that look like they're most likely to be problematic and then connect it with what the child, or in some cases I see young adults as well. And I do this also for older adults, but I'll keep saying child because I'm a pediatrician. So look at what the patient has and then to connect the genotype or the DNA sequence, which again is you know a sequence 3 billion long with the long list of problems that the patient has. And, and to do that, and then if we do order other tests, it's really to identify the genetic disorder found on sequencing. So it's sort of the opposite direction. So yeah. that's what, and so now we do whole genome sequencing and in the neurodevelopmental disorders like autism, we do what's called a trio. And that's to do the mother, the father and the child because so commonly, I'd say about 50% of the time, maybe more, it's a new mutation that's not present in either, either parent but is present in the patient that is the main cause of disease. But these disorders are more complicated. People are more complicated than that. So I look at the rest of the sequence too, to see if there's any other clues as to maybe going on. And then once I have the genetic answer, if I can find it, um, and maybe more than 50% of the time we can do that now, actually, um, which is really amazing compared to what it used to be. I'd say maybe 70% of the time or so in autism, we get a significant genetic answer. Um, then we say, okay, what pathway is it in? What does this gene do? What does the protein do? And then try to figure out how to treat the patient based upon what's actually wrong with the patient and not just a description like autism. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I've heard you speak before about your approach of synthesizing this information which I find very enlightening because a lot of people who use nutrigenomics, you know, will sort of present this just basically like a telephone book of numbers. Um, and, you know, it's sort of an overwhelming type of uh, approach to um, translating this information to patients. You seem to really synthesize using probably your clinical background um, and your ability to strategize and prioritize into some real actionable items. Um, and can you talk a little bit about that and how, how yeah. that developed? Well, I mean, a laboratory test, any laboratory test, a chest x-ray, a CBC, a chemistry panel cannot be interpreted outside of the clinical situation. Just having a lab result really doesn't tell you much of anything. You have to understand the clinical situation and know what it is that you're treating and then use the lab result to try to help you to treat the patient. So we don't treat lab abnormalities. We treat patients. We treat symptoms and treat underlying diseases. So, I mean, to a very large extent that you're right on that. Um, what I do, I mean, as a genomicist, I look at the DNA sequence and I have to understand how the genetics works 
but also how physiology works, how the um, genetic abnormality translates to an abnormality of the protein and how that translates to an abnormality of cellular function and to a problem with homeostasis and physiology. And then as the physician of a patient, you need to take all of the different symptoms, everything that the family, if the patient tells you, and try to figure out what really is going on, what is wrong with the patient that's causing them to have that description. Um, where I see that the power is, is connecting those two. And if I'm the, the physician and I'm the genomicist reading the DNA, then that's really obvious. I take both roles in, in my head at the same time. But I can't be the physician for everybody. And the vast majority of physicians are not genomicists. Like no one would want me to do neurosurgery in the kid. You know, I just don't do that. Yeah. I would be pretty bad at it, you know. Yeah. So you can't, the genomics is so incredibly complicated. It takes really a, a, a expertise in that. So I put together a program we call Peer-to-Peer -peer that um, I can read the sequence as a genomicist, connect to a doctor such as you on a Zoom call, not unlike this one, except the family and often the, the patient will be on there as well. And so, you know, the patient, you know, the problems, you have the chart you know all the lab results. The family knows more than anybody regarding what's wrong. We can go back and ask a question, you know, are there extra fingers or what did the MRI show? Or what did the EEG show? Or is the potassium elevated? Or is there a family history of sudden death with surgery? Or, you know, just off the top of my head, you know, all of these things, that questions that we would want to ask based upon the sequences that we find. And then all together, myself reading the genes, you were another physician with um, knowledge of the disease process and the, and the family and the, and the patient um, with their concerns and, you know, says, well, this is what really bothers me. This is what I want you to address. We come to an assessment over which genetic changes are most likely to be involved and what are the options to do about it? Talk about the pros and cons of various approaches and then decide on, an, an, on a plan. Well, Sounds like a really good and thorough way to approach this, um, especially having the family on the call, um, because, you know, it's it having, you know, translated some of this information to my patients, it can be really overwhelming. And it really the delivery of this information is so critical. Yes, if, they, if you have to remember everything and be able to say everything to them, even if you were just perfect and be able to say everything that I said, the first time they asked a question, it would be. So th that's what, when they had the family on, on the line at the same time, is that they can ask all the questions and I can ask the questions, like I said, to really get an idea. So I really have a, a good feeling of what's going on with the patient. Usually the first thing after introducing myself is I say, you know, what are your top three issues? What, if you had a genie and you had three wishes, what would you fix? Yeah. Because these patients are really complicated and they may have a laundry list of 27 problems, but the family's really concerned about two of those. And those may not be what I seem to think were the major problems when I read the chart. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's always such a critical question is what's important to the patient, you know, and what's, what's their value versus what the clinician might think is important. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So when you when you've progressed in your career about um, looking at the genetics of autism, what, what do the genetics tell us about what's going on in autism? Oh, you know, it's a great question. Um, it's not that long ago, 10 years ago, no one really knew anything about what autism was. There's a few patients here and there that would get diagnosis and they'd all be different and no one really understood. But now having looked at literally the whole genome of hundreds of people with autism and having seen large numbers of gene sequence and thousands of others, I mean, I have a really good feel as to what the disease is. It, what autism is, is it's a description. It's a description when the social communication pathways are preferentially affected. So let me explain that a little bit more. Um, if the, let's say the executive functioning if that's preferentially affected, you get an ADHD type disorder. If the mood disorders, if the mood pathways, the emotional pathways are preferentially affected, then you get like depression, anxiety disorder, that sort of thing. 
If the mortar pathways are preferentially affected, then you can get developmental coordination disorder, cerebral palsy, et cetera. So autism is parallel to those in that social communication pathways, when they're affected more than other pathways, you call it autism. So there's several ways to get there. First of all, if all of the pathways are affected equally, we call that intellectual disability, mental retardation. But if all of the pathways are affected severely and yet the communication is almost zero, that still gives the gestalt of autism. It still seems like you know what we see as an autistic kid or an adult. Mm-hmm. And that would be appropriate. On the other hand, the cognitive abilities can be normal or even advanced, yet social communication may be even on the lower end of the normal range, but the kid's IQ is sky high. And that also gives kind of the gestalt of autism when the social communication is lower than that of the rest. And of course, most cases are in between those two extremes. So what will cause that? Well, almost anything that will that affects the development or the maintenance or the function of a brain will do that. So pathways that are involved in energy metabolism, that's one of my favorite. That's what we're going to talk about later. That's a big one in autism. Mm-hmm. Pathways that are involved in ion currents, ion channels, because opening up of the ion channel to allow salts in like sodium, potassium, chloride, um, calcium, that's how a nerve conducts electricity. A nerve impulse is opening up the channels and letting the salt go in, and that changes the electrical properties. Mm -hmm. Um, Neurons don't touch each other. There's this area called the synapse in between. There's neurotransmitters that cover the synapse. So while ion channels are necessary for for the impulse to get from one end of the neuron to the other, it's neurotransmission with neurotransmitters that are necessary to get to the next neuron. Mm -hmm. So there's all the receptors and all the uptake mechanisms, the neurotransmitter metabolites and the enzymes that make them, et cetera, that can cause autism. Um, Axonal transport, the axons are the long wires of the brain, getting things back and forth down the axon if there's an abnormality with that. Um, One of the things that I want to mention is all of the pathways I mentioned so far are treatable. Not every single condition in every one of those pathways is treatable, but many of those are treatable with um, supplements, drugs, and other things. Mm -hmm. Um, There are other pathways which are less treatable. There are genetic pathways involved in like the genes that turn on and off other genes. Those often can cause autism by affecting many other genes. Uh, One gene affects many other genes, and some of those genes are at least involved in the brain. Many of them are. Mm -hmm. Um, And cytoskeleton, the neuron can literally be 100,000 times longer than its diameter. Mm -hmm. It's a skeleton that holds it in place. It's not just a blob. So if you have cytoskeletal problems, the nerves are required cytoskeleton more than anything else that often comes up as a neurological disorder. I can go on to many, many more pathways, but that kind of gives you an idea. It's really developing and maintaining and functioning of a brain. So you say, well, why would you get autism if you have those abnormalities? Why not ADHD? Why not intellectual disability? Why not anxiety or another mood disorder? Why not a coordination disorder? Um, you can. And a lot of people with autism also do have some or more of these problems as well. Right. Because it affects more than one pathway at the same time and to various degrees. Where other people, the social communication pathway seems to be the only one or by far the most affected. Um, social communication pathways require interaction of various parts of the brain that are far away from each other. So it involves the coordination of brain nuclei or gray matter and all of the white matter in between. Mm -hmm. So it's a more complicated pathway. It seems to be one of the first ones to go down. Mm. It's also one of the last ones to have developed in biology. Mm. And so, you know, I guess the perspective I'm getting is, you know, obviously, you know, when people are looking for um, putting the story together or the, the clinical picture together, it's really a kind of broad look at a lot of crosstalk and a lot of interconnections between genetics versus, you know, just looking for this one specific kind of problem. Um, this is just a very complex condition. It is complex. And while many of the really severe 
cases are new mutations, de novo mutations that were not present in the parents. A lot of the more milder cases are actually polygenic and that their genes inherited by both parents confer risk. Mm-hmm. And all of the, and, but you got genes of risk from both parents and you just had bad luck and then you mm-hmm. can end up with, with autism. That's why, you know, it's about 70% or so concordance of monozygotic or identical twins. That means if you're, if you have autism, there's about a 70% chance your identical twin will, because mm-hmm. it's risk. Obviously that's a very high risk, but mm-hmm. risk is, does not equate the same thing as getting it. Right. So it, you know, those genes may be causing risk, but it doesn't necessarily cause the disease. Mm-hmm. But one thing is, is that I want people to know that autism and almost every other diagnosis that you've heard of, and I'm talking asthma, diabetes, high blood pressure, not just ADHD and mental retardation and all those, but pretty much any diagnosis that you know of, it's just a description. Yeah, It's a description before we really understood the biology. And a description is important because it gives you a place to start with. But the individual people that have autism have abnormalities in a wide variety of different pathways, or maybe more than one at the same time. Yeah. Um, and that you need to really, to know how to treat it, you say, well, what's the treatment for autism? I say, well, first of all, you need to know what's wrong with that individual. Right. And once you can find out what's wrong with that individual, then you can say, okay, what can we do to treat it? And many of these pathways are treatable and many of them are not. And treatment sometimes is dramatic. I have seen patients that are treated and are no longer on the autistic spectrum. They may have ADHD, they may have some learning disabilities, but they're almost or essentially in the normal range. I have ones that had severe autism that are even in normal classes now. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's others that have had no benefit because it's not treatable. And most of the cases fall somewhere in between those two extremes. So finding the answer is the first step and then figuring out what to do with it and then trying different things. So treatment often is helpful. It based on diagnosis to a large degree. And I'd say, you know, there's a good chance that anyone with autism can be helped, but it's not, it's not universal by any means. And the amount of improvement varies a lot. Yeah. Well, and we're going to go into talking about the mitochondrial aspects of autism and Um, we've had some discussions on this podcast before about mitochondria and there's been some sort of basic descriptions of like what mitochondria are like sort of a battery or the powerhouse of the cell. Um, I know that with your description of mitochondria, it goes much more in depth with that. Um, maybe from a high level standpoint, just to kind of say what mitochondria are, and then we can maybe go into, uh, where, where, uh, how, how it's different when we think about mitochondria and autism, what are we actually thinking about? Well, first of all, what mitochondria are is mitochondria are like little symbiotes that live in our cells that one and a half billion years ago, one cell engulfed another cell and didn't completely eat it. And that little cell of bacteria became the mitochondria over time. And so the, our, the mitochondria, which are in almost all of our cells, um, they have a lot of roles. They have about a thousand proteins in the mitochondria at about 23,000 proteins for the entire cell house, okay. about a thousand are in the mitochondria and they do many things, but energy metabolism is one of the main things that they do. They also make a lot of things and break a lot of things down. They're involved in many different pathways. Um, they're also the deaf pathway involved in causing a cell to die. Um, they're involved in immunity. So the mitochondria are really quite complex, but we're mostly talking about the ability of the mitochondria to make energy. So the mitochondria, they replicate by themselves. They have their own DNA, they have their own genetic mechanisms. So they proliferate in a cell. One of the first things that we look at when we look at somebody that says, is their mitochondria working is we count how much mitochondria protein there is in a, in, a, in a sample. And if there's a whole bunch of mitochondrial protein in a sample, we say, well, the mitochondria aren't working so well, so they're replicating the cell, proliferating in order to make more of them. It's like if the engine's not pulling the car up the mountain very well, you can't make the engine better sometimes, but you can duplicate it and put another engine on the same one. Mm -hmm. And not only are you going to have more power that way, but you're going to produce more pollution because the engine that's not working so well is going to be polluting. Now you got two of them. Mm. And it's that pollution a lot of times that causes the symptomatology involved in mitochondrial dysfunction. And that's what we test for in oat tests and other um, biochemical testing. 
Mm-hmm. So the mitochondria, they're complex. They interact with the nucleus or the rest of the cell in many different ways. They're involved in making the energy. Life itself is energy. The difference between somebody who's alive and somebody right after they died is really energy. It's like a computer before and after you unplug it. Mm-hmm. The same computer, but it's very different when it's on than when it's off. And life is energy and the mitochondria make the energy. So if the mitochondria are not working very well to make energy, it's going to affect almost everything, almost every cell does. And that's why when you say, well, mitochondrial dysfunction, it can cause irritable bowel and chronic fatigue and migraine and stroke and autism and ADHD. And, you know, I just keep going on. You said, well, that doesn't make any sense. How can it do everything? Because every cell to do everything requires energy. And if you don't have that energy, then the cell is going to be disadvantaged. And what's going to happen to that cell? Well, that depends on the rest of the genetics and the environment. What kind of disease will the person have, if any? Well, that depends on the rest of the genetics and the environment. So that's why, you know, even if we have an exact diagnosis, I want to look at the rest of the genetics to try to help. And even if you have a genetic abnormality, the environment is critically important. We can manipulate that much more than we can the genetics. Right. So many of the treatments have to do with involving the, the environmental component. Mm-hmm. So one of the things people say is, well, if it's a genetic disorder, I can do nothing about it. So it's, well, no, you were dealt the cards that you were given. But at least if you know your hand, if you read your hand, you'll know how to play the hand. A good card player can win with a poor hand or a bad card player can lose with a good hand. Right. So know the hand that you're dealt with. It doesn't mean you still can't do better. It means that you know how to do better with what you have. Yeah. Yeah. I like how, you know, it's described that um, to the patients that this is, this is risk. It's doesn't mean it's, it's turned on. Genetics means risk, right? That these genes don't cause disease. These genes make the cell do something that it needs and a mutation or a variant in it affects the cell's ability to do what it needs and whether the cell will have a dysfunction or be able to be perfectly normal depends on the rest of the genetics and the environment. The body tries to maintain homeostasis and everybody has a huge number of mutations. No one's perfect. Right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of us who have been caring for autism spectrum disorders for, you know, for I was first started learning about how to care for these patients like 15 or so years ago. And it was, uh, we would always just like start with treating the gut or taking out specific, um, food triggers. We didn't, we didn't have a lot of advanced genetic testing to work from. We kind of used, we have a few tools and some of them are still around. I'm just wondering the usefulness of, um, you know, some of these tools. So first, you know, like the oat test you mentioned, that was, that's always been a tool that we use for kind of seeing if the genes are potentially expressing this pattern. Um, maybe you could talk about the oat test first and then maybe dive into some of the other, um, functional tests that are out there. Well, I mean, the, before, I, I think we ought to get back to that question, but first of all, I'd like to make the connection between mitochondria and autism. Um, yeah. it's, cause it's, you say, I said that autism can be caused by a wide variety of pathways. So why are we going to dive into mitochondria? Yeah, um, it's because and we don't really understand why, but the vast majority of people with autism have abnormal functioning mitochondria. Um, if you do like a, these days, I do a miter swab test, which is where you, it's a little Q-tip sort of thing. You go back and forth and you put it in the mail costs, I don't know, around $300 or so in insurance usually pays for it. Um, We used to do muscle biopsies in the operating room and spent $10,000 on tests. So that's a a major, you know, advance. The miter swab test will tell you if there's something wrong with the mitochondria or not. There almost always is. How much of a problem there is. And that's important because the average person with autism has mitochondrial dysfunction. But every once in a while, there's a patient that has much more severe mitochondrial dysfunction, and I would approach that differently, or a patient that has no mitochondrial dysfunction. It's rare, maybe 10% or less, but I see it every once in a while, and I approach that differently too. 
Um, it'll also tell me what parts of the mitochondria seem not to be working so that when I use cocktail, which is really high powered vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, and et cetera, or dietary supplements, usually the same stuff that's in food, but at much higher, much higher amounts. Um, it will give me an idea as to which ones are more important, depending on which part of the mitochondria is not working. So when you look at this mitoswab test, or we used to do muscle biopsies in the, in the past, the vast majority of people with, with autism had mitochondrial dysfunction. And so people used to speculate, well, is it a mitochondrial disorder? Certainly people with mitochondrial disease often will have autism, but usually don't. It's pretty common for them to have it. But now that we understand the genetics, we know that so many of them have things like neurotransmitters or genetic defects or channelopathies or something, but they still have mitochondrial dysfunction. Some of them are easy to figure out. If your channels are leaking, um, let's say it's a calcium channelopathy, I see those in autism a lot. I like when I see those because I know I can treat them. Um, I see that and I say, okay, your calcium channels are leaking. Um, here is a drug that will help to, to stop that. But at the same time, the calcium channels are leaking, meaning that the pumps are working 24 seven to pump that calcium back. Those pumps use energy. If you think the bouncer's not, you know, the bouncer at the calcium door is letting too much in, well, that bouncer needs to use a bunch of energy to throw them out of the nightclub. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of energy to do that. And you, it's, you have mitochondrial dysfunction, not because you can't make enough energy, but because you use it too quickly. So some of them are more obvious. Some of the defects I look at, and I can't figure out how the mitochondria is involved, but yet the mitoswab test is clear and the patient's gotten better on mitochondrial targeted therapies. So regardless of what, it, you know, I always do the genetic testing and the mitoswab swab simultaneously when I have a patient, because the genetics will hopefully tell me what the underlying problem is, and that will hopefully give me a solution to what to do about it. But whether I find the cause and whether the cause is treatable or not, the mitoswab swab will tell me if there's mitochondrial dysfunction, usually there is, to what degree and where in the mitochondria it is. And then I can direct treatment on that, even if the underlying genetic cause is treatable as an additional therapy, or if it's not treatable. Mm -hmm. And the mitochondria is mostly treated with dietary supplements, as I mentioned. There are cofactors such as coenzyme Q10 that we should talk about later because it's so incredibly important. Um, there's carnitine, there's the vitamins A, B, C, D, E, and K are all important in the mitochondria. There are minerals such as selenium, zinc, um, manganese, molybdenum, magnesium in particular. And there's many other cofactors, alpha lipoic acid, alpha, alpha lipoic acid, alpha ketoglutarate, et cetera. So I used to go crazy ordering those for the patient because the patients did often much better when we used high powered supplements but it was very difficult for the patients to buy all of that stuff separately. And most of the stuff over the counter is not any good. And right. so you'd have to, you know, get different brands of different things. So I came up with my own combination products for that, that I use now. And there's other combination products on the market as well. That's the neuro, usually, neuro needs. Neuro needs. Yeah. That's a conflict of interest. I own part of the company, but yeah, neuro needs has a product called Spectrum Needs, which is a powder. It comes in lemon or berry flavored mm -hmm. and Energy Needs, which is in a capsule. Mm -hmm. And I always add CoQ on top of it, coenzyme Q10 in the ubiquinol form, the OL form of that mm -hmm. um, on top of that. Um, we also make Q Needs, but there's other brands out there because the, the Spectrum Needs is a powder or the Energy Needs that has a powder in capsules. You can't mix that with oil very well. And CoQ is really an oil. Mm -hmm. um, and so it needs to be taken separately. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when, when mitochondria are dysregulated, can you just take us through like a downstream effect in the autistic patient? Like, uh -huh. you know, if that, if that's the hub of a, a major hub of the imbalance, like what's the downstream effect of that? Well, the, I mean, it's true that almost everything that all cells do require energy, but some cells need energy more than others, and some tasks require more energy than others. Nerves are electrical, and they require a tremendous amount of energy. And the brain uses up a fair amount of the energy of the entire body at rest. 
and as many as a third are in some kids, like half the energy of the entire body is operated, you know, by the brain. And so the brain is not all that large compared to the rest of the body, and it uses a tremendous amount of energy. And so when you have a mitochondrial problem, it's the first thing to go. The brain is also just more sensitive. If you have like um, a drowning situation or a strangulation or a stroke or anything like that, the brain is one of the, even drugs like alcohol. The brain is like the first thing that's going to happen. It's going to be affected because it's just more sensitive than everything else. Mm-hmm. So the mitochondrial dysfunction preferentially affects neurons in the brain, as well as outside of the brain, the autonomic nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, et cetera. Um, and the nervous system, particularly the brain is just more vulnerable to disease. So in mitochondrial dysfunction, you can get any sort of neurological disorder. Um, but the autism is, 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 fairly common. I mean, the social communication pathways, I said, they involve many different parts of the brain and the interconnections. It's a more complicated unit. And it's one of the first ones to show problems. The other one that's also really common to show problems are the frontal lobes, the executive functioning part. And when those don't work, you get ADHD. Often you see those together. So people will say, well, it can't be ADHD because it's autism. No, you can have both pathways affected and often do. Sure. And the treatments are not exactly the same. Sure. So, you know, I, I'm surprised, like in this conversation, you know, we've been into it like 30 minutes or so. Now we, I haven't heard the term oxidative stress or that's usually, that's usually an early Uh feature of a conversation that, you know, with this topic, how does that fit into this puzzle? Well, I did mention that I said about the pollution. I said, yeah. if the mitochondria aren't working very well, that they're going to pollute more. And it's it, like you, it's the analogy of the car, the car burns gasoline. If the engine is not working you know, very well, you have smoke, which is half burned gasoline. Well, half burned fats and half burned sugars are acids. And that's what you find on the oat test, organic oh. acid. The A in oat is acid. Um, but you also will find um, free radicals and free radicals cause oxidative stress. Okay. And while my, and I've been talking about the mitochondrial cocktail and I've given you some of the components, many of those components assist the mitochondria to make more energy. But I think what really what they're doing more than anything is they're trying to clean up the damage. So they're removing all of those toxins, including the free radicals that make oxidative damage. They, they also remove a lot of other intermediates as well. There's glycine and carnitine in my combination products, and that helps to, um, to chelate out, you know, to coordinate the removal of um, things from the, for, of intermediates of metabolism um, from the mitochondria. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for clarifying that. So I'm trying to stay away from big words like oxidative stress, but oxidative stress is a major component of it. I just danced around the term. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like pollution that, 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 that I use pollution, but yeah. Yeah. So the um, mito swap test, is that something that you're doing in like a serial kind of um, method, meaning like as you, you come back to it periodically during treatment to see if there's improvement? You know, we have a study going on. Um, actually, if anybody in your audience is interested in the study, we do need more participants. I'm providing the spectrum needs and the Q needs for it. And it's Dr. Richard Fry um, oh. at Phoenix Children's Hospital. It's actually running the study. So I'm quarter of the sponsor in terms of providing the, the, the treatment. But I yeah. try to keep away from it and let him do the study so that it's all legitimate and everything. Yeah. So if people might be interested in that, one of the, what that is going to do is to show, hopefully, that there is serial improvement in the mitoswab um, as we treat mitochondrial dysfunction in patients with autism. Okay. Um, and, you know, that, and, but nobody, to my knowledge, this will be the first study that's ever done that. So okay. while I do agree, I think that probably the mitre swab will improve. And I think the mitre swab is a good way to see the improvement. No one has done the study. We're doing it now. Okay. So yeah, I've, I do do mitre swabs every once in a while in patients. It gives me some information, but this is really new. You know, there's, it, it's somewhat speculative at this, at this moment. Okay. Um, with your approaches, uh, you know, as far as we started off the talk saying that, you know, the, 
the genes aren't your destiny kind of approach. Um, how wide do you generally go with that? I mean, there's, you know, do you, do you get into nutrition, diet, gut health, that kind of, uh, those kind of approaches? Um, well, a lot of the people that I work with do. Um, I try to, like I said, I mean, I'm using the metaphor of neurosurgery. I try to, you know, just stay away from that sort of stuff. I try to read the genes, um, to help the physician take care of the patient and understand the genes. And many of my, in my own patients, I try to, to do things. One of the things I do talk about it to a good clean living, um, why is diet important? Why is exercise important? Why is the avoidance of toxins important? Like alcohol, hard drugs, et cetera. Why is good sleep important? Yeah. A lot of these work on the mitochondria and that mitochondria, good clean health is really the same as mitochondrial health to some degree. So patients that have mitochondrial disorders, I will tell them, you know, as long as you're doing heavy drinking, as long as you're smoking, you're, every cigarette is going to decrease, you know, what I do, and I'm not going to be all that effective. As long as you're sleeping two hours a night or you're, you're sleeping totally erratically, it's going to be hard to get rid of that. I can't really help with fatigue until you start exercising regularly. Yeah. You know, if, if you don't clean up your diet, the supplements are not going to have, you know, are, are not going to make up for the diet. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I do get involved in that stuff. Um, in terms of like gut health and everything, if there's significant gut problems, I usually send to a GI specialist or they may have a, a functional doctor or a neuropathic doctor such as yourself to do that, that I work in conjunction with. Gotcha. Okay. One of the um, therapies that you haven't mentioned that's been around for a little bit. I, um, and they kind of talk about when there's mitochondrial dysfunction is like lipid therapies, um, sort of these, this, uh, approach to stabilize the mitochondrial membrane with, um, lipids. Uh, is that something that's in your framework or is that something that still needs a lot of research? Um, it's the, the lipids do, many different things. I mean, lipids are very important for the membranes and in, in the brain and elsewhere. Um, lipids like that say like omega-3s, like you get in fish oil or in krill oil are important for general health, for cardiac health. Um, they're also important for brain health. I always recommend an omega-free source in my own patients. Um, actually, we're coming out with um, some omega products ourselves is to try to maximize the potential of the, um, in, improving brain health as well as general health at the same time. So now I do definitely recommend like an omega free source at the same time. And depending upon the underlying genetics, there may be even more important to, um, to regulate the fatty acids or the fat intake or one way or the other. Gotcha. Okay. So let's, let's dive into CoQ10, um, a little bit. And then, uh, mm -hmm. I think there's also like, uh, PQQ is maybe it's cousin, uh, um, there's a lot of different types of CoQ out there, and many of them are in clinical trials right now by drug yeah. companies. Um, my experience is, I mean, it's the same as some other, we we'll call mitochondriacs, people that treat mitochondrial medicine and a little different in some ways. I use ubiquinol, which is the OL form. It's a, it's studies have shown it's about five times more bioavailable than ubiquinol, which is almost everything you get over the counter. And um, you can buy ubiquinol at some stores and you can get it on the line without a prescription. It's, um, I use it in very high doses and I get blood levels and I bring the dose up until I get the blood level in the, in the area I like. Normal dose is up to about 1.4, about 0.6 to 1.4 in the blood is a normal level. I like it higher than four, between four and seven. I find that patients do very well when it's sky high. Um, by the way, a lot of cardiac people say they want it 2.3 or three or above. So, you know, maybe I go a little bit higher or whatever, but around pretty similar. When you have really high levels, they tend to do better. Um, some CoQs are better than others. Even some ubiquinols are better than others. Um, I have a product QNEEDS, which is very highly bioavailable based upon their, um, the blood tests in my patients. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that it, the CoQ is so important. It's a very powerful antioxidant that helps with oxidative stress. That's the main thing that it does. It also is important in and of itself to help with the mitochondria. It moves electrons in many different places in the electron transport chain. 
I think that if your CoQ level is low, that it, it, you're really not going to get better until that's corrected, in my opinion. And patients do much better when it's actually very high. Okay. And so this, there's always these terms like stabilized versus reduced or, you know, what, what, what would oh, you say? Yeah. That? Ubiquinol is the, is the form, which is um, the most bioavailability in the body. Ubiquinol and ubiquinone will go back and forth very easily among them, but you, the ubiquinol gets into the body better. Um, so it goes into the, it's in the form that you want it, but it, it, it will go, they'll go back and forth. The other thing, there's all of these other CoQs out there. I know that there's studies that shown that people have done better with PQQ and all these other things, but I think that's based upon that versus no CoQ at all. When you use those expensive types of CoQ, I think that they do help and people do better, but I haven't seen that when my patients go on that, that they do better, probably because they're on so much CoQ, they already have all the benefit from that. So that's, that is my opinion on that. If you get the CoQ level high enough, you can get great benefit in the patients. And I'm not so sure that those other forms on top of it make much of a difference. Oh, that's great to know. Yeah. I've, I've never heard any therapeutic like target ranges um, from anybody else about how, where to target CoQ10 at. So that's really helpful um, and kind of, you know, gives us somewhere to, to kind of use that therapy more effectively. Uh, you know, it's um, that, you know, I think kind of circling back a little bit um, to, you know, thinking about being in the position of a parent who has a young child that's been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders. And um, where would you, if you were to help that family figure out like where to start, what, where, uh, yeah. how, what is that conversation like? Cause it's, I think it's, it's such a, it's such a moment. Um, I've been a parent of, of you know, I, one of my child's had a very serious diagnosis and so I've been in that, that setting before, and it, it's always really helpful to have someone share like where to start. Well, there's been kind of two themes I've had here is first of all is get genetic testing. And second of all, address mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, and the, the, and the first one not all genetic testing is equal. Some labs do a great job. Other labs do a horrible job. Most are somewhere in between. Whole genome sequencing is what I recommend because it will do all of the genes plus everything between the genes. Plus it'll give you the genetic architecture that will give you more information than a chromosomal microarray. Plus it will look at the mitochondrial DNA. Plus it will look at the trinucleotide repeats like Fragile X and many others. And you can do pharmacogenomics on that which drug to use, like for ADHD or for an autism drug. A lot of times we use psychotropics. I use those a lot. They also have beneficial effects on mitochondria many times. Which drug do you use? Will one of those drugs work? Which dose do you start with? Um, those questions can be answered a lot by genetics. There's so many times people have said, you know, well, we tried this drug and it didn't work, but their liver eats up the drug like crazy because the, you can see on their genetics, they said, well, this dose is nothing. Let's give twice that amount and see, you know, if that will work. And then, the, you know, it, it, they do great. Or they said, oh, that one, there were horrible side effects and their liver can't break it down at all. So, so this started a quarter of the dose. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, your genetic test doesn't say that you can't use that. Your genetic test says you can get the same effect cheaper because you need yeah. a smaller dose. Yeah. So, you, I mean, the genetics is really important. And to somebody that can order the right tests, like I said, I get TRIO whole genome sequencing and not that's every the, lab's the same. That's the name of the lab, TRIO? Uh, TRIO just means tree, free, T-R-I-O. Yeah, three of them, all three, the, the, um, both parents and the child together. Oh, I see. TRIO. So there's not, okay. Gotcha. I, I happen to use variantics. I don't have a conflict of interest with them. That's spelled the word variant and then YX at the end, all in one word. Okay. Um, I think they do an amazing job. They're, they take insurance. They're easy to work with. Um, and they allow me to, to on the backside of the computer so that I can look at everything myself like I work there. Mm. Um, but that's the lab that I get the best results from. Um, and I order trio from that. So the first thing, like I said, would be, you know, find somebody that will do the genetic testing and, and have that person order it. 
or at least be consulted in which test you get. Cause I can't tell you how many patients have said, okay, well, you did this, but this is useless. We have to start over again. Right. And unfortunately it's worse than starting over because your insurance company aren't going to pay for it a second time. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing is to address mitochondrial dysfunction. Does your child have it? How much of it is a problem trying mitochondrial cocktails um, which ones to try? I prefer a combination product, not just only because I make it, but I mean, energy is in a, it's an assembly line. If we had slides, I can show you what the electron transport chain actually looks like. We have electron micrographs of it. It's an assembly line. If you give the guy in the middle of the assembly line vi vitamins and he goes twice as fast, you're not going to make twice as many cars. You're going to have chaos. Right. But if you give all of the people on the assembly line vitamins, then you might get more. I find less side effects when you use the combination product than when you use individuals. Oh. Wow. Very interesting. Oh, just fascinating. I'm going to have to listen to this podcast three or four times. Uh, that's my favorite kind of podcast. <laughs> thank I you so much. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for, um, for sharing um, all this great information. I, um, I'd love just to kind of hear some parting words if you have any, and then um, we're, we're kind of dedicating this podcast to an organization called Mito Action. Um, yeah. And I'd love to hear a little bit about them and then just any kind of parting words of how people can follow your, your work. Well, um, Mito Action is an organization of people. It's um, a bunch of parents and people that are concerned and physicians. I'm one of the, um, the advisors and to try to help families that have a person with mitochondrial disease, mitochondrial dysfunction, mm -hmm. to give them um, information and support. And nice. that's basically what it is. And you can just find it at mitoaction.org, I believe it is, but you Google it would be really easy. Mitoaction, all one word, um, M-I-T-O, M-A-C-T-I-O-N. Um, and for myself, um, most, of the, most of the DNA testing I do is through neurobilities. And it's the office is in the Philadelphia area on both sides of New Jersey and, and Pennsylvania. I happen to be in California, but it's all telemedicine. Um, and even if you're outside of the United States, I can still communicate with your doctor in telemedicine and help them order tests, interpret tests, and to treat it. So if you could just look at neurabilities in neur in E U R, and then the word abilities, A B I L I T I E S all one word, neurabilities, and that would give you a good place to start. Great, great, wonderful. Well, um, thank you so much for your time. This has been very helpful. I will put links to all those mentions in our show notes and show descriptions. And um, yeah, I would love to continue to follow your work and um, perhaps do another one of these one day. Oh, you're welcome very much. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the One Piece Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these, the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from the, forward the, the episode to them and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, I look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.